Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And for today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Daniel Whiteson, who is a particle physicist and science communicator and one of the hosts of the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. Uh, this is Daniel's third time hopping on the show with us. The previous episodes were in September of 2019 and April of 2020. And uh, for this episode, we're going to be talking about a book. Uh, Daniel and his co-host and co-author, Jorge Cham, have a new book called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe. Uh, so it was a real pleasure to have Daniel on the show for the hat trick. And I guess without any further delay, we will go right into the interview. Daniel, welcome back to the show. We're so glad you're here. Thanks very much for having me back. Always fun to talk to you guys about things that blow my mind. Awesome. So um, uh, the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, still going strong. Um, how how far are you into explaining the universe in its entirety? <laughs> we have explained 0.0000001% of the universe so far. Nice. I, uh, I actually, I was looking at your recent episodes and I saw, did, did you recently do one that was an interview with Sean Carroll about the... Uh the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. I know, I know he favors that, right? Yeah, we actually have a series where I interview an expert on each of the interpretations of quantum mechanics. Uh, we did one on Copenhagen interpretation with Adam Becker. We did one on the relational interpretation of quantum mechanics with Carlo Rovelli. And then we talked to Sean about many worlds interpretation. And just a couple of weeks ago, we did one about the pilot wave theory of quantum mechanics, which totally blew my mind. A really much overlooked and, and uh, unnecessarily maligned interpretation of quantum mechanics. <laughs> in my opinion. Maligned? Like people are being mean to it? <laughs> well, there's this famous proof by, by John von Neumann like 70 years ago demonstrating that it was essentially impossible. And because von Neumann is such a giant of the field, everybody thought, well, that's that. Turns out he was wrong, though. And, mm. and it took people years to figure it out. It was Bell, actually, who figured out that Neumann was wrong and that it's possible to have a theory of quantum mechanics with hidden variables that's deterministic, that's not random at all. Um, but still to this day, nobody really takes pilot wave theory seriously to Bell's great frustration. And I think it's because Neumann sort of threw shade on it decades ago and it never really recovered. I guess that's always dangerous when there's like a famously smart person who has an opinion. Absolutely. And I find that physics Nobel Prize winners are especially guilty of this. <laughs> of imagining yeah. that they are experts in every corner of everything and opining on economics or, you know, social politics or whatever. If you oh, have boy. Nobel Prize winner in front of your name, you're an expert. Uh, so today we wanted to talk about a couple of chapters that are in a, a book of yours. Did that come out earlier this year? Uh, tell us a bit about the book. Yeah, so the book is called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe that I wrote together with my co-host on the podcast and longtime collaborator, Jorge Cham, who's also famous for being the genius behind PhD comics. And the book comes from noticing that people who write into our podcast often ask similar types of questions. There are a few things that seems like everybody just wants to know about or understand or the things that people grapple with. 
you know, I'm a professional particle physicist in my day job. Um, and so I like asking questions about, you know, the deep nature of the universe and how are space and time really related. But you don't have to be a professor of physics to find these things interesting. And we feel like, in a sense, uh, you know, curiosity is democratic. Everybody wonders about these things. So we wanted to try to attack some of these really big questions that everybody wonders about in an approachable way, in a way that doesn't require you to really have any knowledge of modern physics at all. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've really been enjoying the chapters I was reading. One thing I like that you do in this book is... Um is, is that, you know, it's not like a, a continuous narrative that has to, you have to have read everything that came before in order to understand, like, the chapters can be consumed pretty much on their own, right? Yeah, we figured, you know, each chapter should be like one long bathroom break. So, I mean, I'm not telling you where to read it, but if you're looking for <laughs> reading while you're busy sitting down doing something else, each chapter, you know, should entertain you while you're doing your business. Just, uh, you know, don't get so distracted that you forget to flush. Right now, obviously, this uh, edition uh, would lack the wonderful illustrations that are in the uh, the print and the Kindle version. But um, but you guys put together an audio version as well, right? Yes, we did. We got to record the audio version of the book, which is out now also. And the chapters are read by me and by Jorge, alternating, uh, which is a lot of fun to sort of see, hear your words come to life. Um, but yes, the audio book does miss some of the, the real genius of Jorge's drawings. Um, Jorge and I started working together on science communication more than 10 years ago when I reached out to him because I thought that cartoons would be a really great medium for communicating science because they don't take themselves seriously. You know, a cartoon is different from like a figure in a science paper, you know, which is very official and formal. A cartoon like makes fun of itself and is easy to, you know, hang out with and accessible. And Jorge was great at that kind of stuff. So he and I started working together on explaining science using cartoons a long time ago. Um, And one thing I really value about his cartoons is not just that they are good visual explainers. He has a real visual skill for explaining something simply on the page, but also that there's sort of a second voice there. You can hear like in the text, there's the voice of me as a physicist. And then in the cartoons, you can hear sort of his response to some of the crazy (laughs) ideas. Um, And that sort of mirrors the way the podcast works on the podcast. I'm talking about physics and Jorge's you know, so like, well, that doesn't make any sense, or how could that possibly be, or what? You got to explain that again. So it sort of tries to capture those two voices. Yeah, I really liked that. The uh, the illustrations almost seem kind of riffing on the written contents mm-hmm. of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, so the parts of the book that we wanted to focus on today, I think, were mostly centered around the idea of uh, time. And so maybe, maybe a good place to start is uh, you have a chapter in the book where you talk about time travel, and mm-hmm. you make some arguments about which types of time travel are plausible from a physics perspective and which are not. Uh, So maybe that would be a good place to start. Uh, Give us the lay of the land. Like, what types of time travel are the least consistent with the known laws of physics and uh, which are the most consistent? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So for those of your listeners who are busy building their time travel devices, I hope this will be useful advice. Well, you know, the kind of time travel that's most inconsistent with the law of physics is the kind that most people want to do. 
you know, which is I want to go back in time and change something. I want to not spill my coffee on my lap or I want to go, uh, you know, not um, make a mistake or I want to go ask that person out in high school, which I was too timid to do. And now I realize I should have that kind of thing. It's not just that it's ruled out by the laws of physics. In my view, it's not even sort of internally self-consistent what it means, um, you know, and, and a lot of people think about time travel as like, I want to go back in time as if time was a place, like if it's a somewhere you can go, it's just sort of like along a different direction or something. And it's tempting to think about it that way because we, we hear a lot about modern physics telling us that space and time are related and time is like a fourth dimension of space. And so it makes you want to think about time as a direction in which you can move and maybe you could just rewind it somehow, right? But the problem is that Time, you know, first of all, we don't understand time like at all. We can dig into that in a minute if you like. Um, but the problem is that time sort of reflects how the universe changes. And so, you know, think about time is like you have a timeline. That timeline is the universe changing. Like you have the universe at one moment and you have the universe at another moment. The next moment comes later in time and things can't change without time. Time is that change. So the self-consistency problem is that going back in time to change it changes the timeline itself. So like, how does the timeline change? If the timeline is the change, how does the timeline itself change? It would need like its own time. Like the timeline is now moving through time because there was a time before you changed it and a time after you changed it. So it needs like a second dimension of time. I mean, it just sort of all becomes very complicated and falls apart as soon as you start thinking about it carefully. So going back and changing something in the past really just makes no sense from a physics point of view. Yeah, uh, I love this because I have uh, long kind of been skeptical about the idea of time travel into the past. And one of the reasons I, I had doubts about this is that wouldn't we expect to have already encountered lots of time travelers at some point in history? And there's no unambiguous evidence of that. I mean, obviously, some people, you know, they're weird little things people think are, are time travel, but nothing that looks really clear. So it kind of makes me think that if if time travel into the past ever happens in the future, it will be of a very limited nature. Yeah, I love that as an experimental proof, you know, like if time travel exists any time in the future, then you would expect to see it now. I love that. It's a, such a powerful argument. Uh, it sort of reminds me of Stephen Hawking's famous invitation to time travelers, where he threw a party and then he posted the invitation later after the party. The idea of being that time travelers, you know, they should be able to get there anyway. <laughs> but of course, nobody showed up to his party. <laughs> Well, um, that so. we, we know of, he might have dispensed with them. Right? That could have been the whole point. <laughs> right. yeah. Or maybe he is a time traveler. <laughs> oh, that's a good uh, premise for a sci-fi movie, like the time traveler hunters trying to eliminate all evidence of the time travelers. Yeah. Well, that that kind of plays into um, uh, you know some of what you're talking about about it being if, if it if it does exist in the future, then it must be limited in scope. And I guess you could look at it at a couple of different, you could basically just sci-fi the hell out of it in multiple directions. But, mm -hmm. you know, you could say like, well, maybe 
travel into the past. It has a range and we haven't reached the point to where time machines of the future can reach us. Or it's just so tightly policed that nobody can make it back. You know, we have time cops or, or something that are, uh, that are keeping people from making too much of a show of the whole thing. There's so many of those science fiction depictions of like a big time bureaucracy, you know, that's managing the time flow. Like you saw that in Loki and in Umbrella Academy and, and it, and in, um, that book recently, this is how you win the time war. And those can be a lot of fun, but also I feel like they're, they just make no sense at all. You know, how do you have this weird administration that's separated from time and also weirdly frozen in like 1950s bureaucracy? Uh, you know, it's fun, but not, not if you think about it really at all. What also reminds me a lot of, um, of something I was actually chatting with you about uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, when I, I interviewed you for a short uh, freelance piece for HowStuffWorks.com about, um, about the zoo hypothesis. Mm. Uh, you, uh, you spoke about, about that um, uh, for the interview, and uh, uh, you mentioned that one of the, the strong arguments against it is that if there is actually this, um, this conspiracy of, of aliens to uh, avoid contact with humans and, and, and keep us in the dark about the, uh, you know, the galactic civilizations uh, just outside of our view, um, the, the main argument against it is that, that uh, governments, uh, as we know them, by the only model that we, we know them, the, the, the human model, are not really good at keeping secrets. They're not good yeah. at, at managing secrets. And it seems like you could also apply that to the idea of intelligent beings or humans in the future managing the timeline and so forth. Exactly. You know, some version of Elon Musk in the future is going to get his hands on it and then he's going to launch a bunch of crazy, uh, you know, missions and somebody's going to mess something up. So it's hard to imagine that people in the future having time travel and somehow keeping it a secret or slipping into the past unnoticed and nobody ever, you know, breaking the protocol or something. It's it just becomes totally implausible uh, the more you think about it. Picking up off that, I mean, this is another one of the weird things about time is it seems like time is actually one of the uh, arguments against the idea of a coherent galactic civilization. Uh, if this makes any sense, because like you'd think a, a civilization in order to organize itself has to have some pretty close to synchronous, uh, you know, thing going on. Like mm -hmm. things have to be happening pretty close to around the same time for them. But does it even make sense for, I don't know, one planet in a galactic civilization to be part of a civilization with one on the other side of the galaxy. I mean, is there, you know, can they say, uh, uh, is there such a thing as what's happening right now on a planet on the other side of the galaxy? Yeah, you make a great point because there's a speed limit to information moving through the universe, which puts an effective limit on like how well you can coordinate and organize things. We actually think about this in cosmology all the time because there's a like a largest thing that can exist in the universe just from very simple arguments like the age of the universe and the speed of light. You can't have an object that's like 10,000 billion light years wide that's like coordinated, that has like a structure that's like gravitationally bound on itself because there hasn't been time for like a photon to even cross over the entire size of that object. So there's like a limit to how big the universe can even build like a thing, not to mention like the close coordination required to like organize a galactic empire. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the sheer size of space definitely limits our ability to explore it unless it breaks down into, you know, lots of different unorganized 
entities. Like maybe we send humans in an arc off to another star and they start their own human colony and we're not in touch and we're not part of some, you know, political nation state, but at least we're humans here and there are humans there. Yeah, I I think that's a great way to conceptualize it. So uh, I guess coming back to time travel for a minute, uh, I wanted to talk about some of the specifics you offer about physically plausible ways of traveling into the past. Uh, So you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned the idea of wormholes, and then you also mentioned one that might be less familiar to people, the idea of an infinitely long cylinder of spinning dust, which could (laughs) potentially, at least maybe, uh, depending on – uh, some, something about w- whether something about relativity is true or not mm-hmm, uh, could mm-hmm. potentially allow time travel into the past through something called time loops. Could you could you explain how this would work? Like, what would this experience be like for the time traveler? Yeah. Well, the short answer is we just don't know. Uh, this is a realm where we are like on the cutting edge theoretically. People are looking at the rules of how space and time bend and twist. Because, you know, general relativity, our theory for space and time itself, essentially tells us that space and time bend in response to mass and then tell masses how to move. So, for example, you have an empty universe and you put a star in it, it bends the space around the star. And then the bending of that space tells things how to move and not just through space, but also through time. So you go near a black hole, for example, time is slowed down. So there's definitely some deep connection there between space and time. And what people have done is try to explore extreme scenarios of that. What happens if you do this? What happens if you do that? Is this allowed? Is that allowed? And so it's sort of like exploring the universe, but just inside our own heads. We can't necessarily yet go out there and build these things in space and say, let's see what happens experimentally. But we can do similar like thought experiments where we say, what would happen if you did this and let's just let assume the equations are correct and see what happens. And so there's a couple of fun scenarios there. One, as you said, is wormholes. These are really crazy because they are like connections between different points in space. And when you think of space, you probably think of like just sheer emptiness, you know, the backdrop, the stage on which the universe happens. But now we know that space is more complex. It can bend and it can twist. And that might be something that you can put in your head. You can imagine like space bending around the sun. But because space is like a thing with an arrangement, it could also do other really weird things like be connected non-trivially. So you have like a chunk of space over here. It can be directly connected to a chunk of space over there. What does that mean? Well, you're used to the space around you being connected to the space right next to it. That's what it means to be right next to it, right? You take a step to the left, you move to the next sort of piece of space. Think of it sort of like pixels on a screen, right? Well, a wormhole is a connection between two points in space that are otherwise really distant. And so you take a step from a from one pixel, and now you're in a pixel on the other side of the screen. And so that seems weird and impossible, but remember, space can have all sorts of strange connections. And according to the equations of general relativity, the ones that define how space is organized, that is allowed. It is possible. And so a couple of folks at Caltech were thinking about, well, you know, what about time? Is it possible for one end of the wormhole to be in one place and the other end to be in another time? Because as you were mentioning earlier, like the notion of simultaneity, like when is now, depends really on where you are also. 
So they have this idea you take one end of the wormhole and you accelerate it near the speed of light, then effectively it can be sort of back in time. And this all works theoretically, but it also sort of contradicts other things we know. Like if you go through this wormhole and you come out in the past, you know, doesn't that break things like causality? If you come out in the past and kill yourself before you um, do the experiment, then you don't do the experiment. You don't come out in the past. So it appears to create paradoxes and nobody knows like how to resolve that. Does that mean that these things are impossible? Does that mean if you did that, the universe would like disappear in a puff of logic? Nobody really knows what would happen. So there's a bit of a contradiction in the theory itself that it predicts something which seems to be disallowed by other parts of the theory. And it's a similar idea for these closed time-like curves. People said if you create these infinitely long cylinders of spinning dust, which doesn't sound easy to do, then it bends time in this way that the time, then as you move forward in time, you're actually moving sort of like sideways through space time in a way that's similar to the experience of going into a black hole. Outside a black hole, time always moves forwards. Inside a black hole, space is bent so much that space only moves towards the center of the black hole. It's like one direction to space. So if you imagine space being distorted, not quite as much as a black hole, but sort of in a similar direction that it sort of bends space sideways, then you can create these paths where something can move in a loop through time. Um, But you would be trapped on that loop. So you wouldn't be able to like change anything. It's like a fixed loop, sort of like Harry Potter style loop through time where every time you go through, it's exactly the same thing happening. And these are really fun because nobody knows like if these are actually possible and what would happen if you actually went through them. So, so we don't really know, for instance, like what conceivable reason there would be for um, a civilization to conceivably construct one of these. Yeah, because we don't know practically what you could achieve. And also an infinite cylinder of spitting dust sounds like an expensive project. (laughs) Yeah, the word infinite seems to raise some doubts. (laughs) And when it comes to wormholes, people know how to calculate whether a wormhole is allowed by the theory of general relativity. Nobody knows how to build a wormhole. You know, it's sort of like saying, okay, it's possible to have an apple pie, but but we don't have a recipe for making one, right? It's a different thing to say, like, I know how to put it together than to say it's technically allowed to exist in the universe. You know, it's like if you say, well, the sun is allowed by the laws of physics, but I don't know how to make it happen if I just start from a cloud of gas, for example. And so that's a big puzzle. Nobody really knows how to build a wormhole or even keep one open um, if you did manage to build one. Are there any reasons to suspect that wormholes exist naturally? Oh, great question. Not yet, no. Um, Some people wonder if there are wormholes that connect the supermassive black holes at the hearts of all of our galaxies. But there's not like any evidence out there, anything that can't be explained without wormholes, that you would need wormholes to explain. Um, That would be super cool, though. No, um, I'm not aware of any evidence like that. 
Well, Daniel, uh, you also have a chapter in the book uh, that I really liked on the question of will time ever stop? And I think this is one of those great questions because it's a yes or no question. And like many big questions in physical cosmology, it's a binary, but no matter which answer it is, it's mind boggling. Like it is impossible to imagine time either stopping or going on forever. Uh, so so what, what are your thoughts here about uh, whether time will ever stop? Uh, I echo your feeling there. And I also think it's really fascinating to go back through history and read about which concept felt more natural to people. Initially, it felt to people like time should go on forever, obviously. That was like 150 years ago, before we knew that the universe was expanding. People looked out in the stars, and they looked like they were just sort of hanging out. And they thought, maybe the universe is just sort of there. And so, obviously, it's been there forever, right? And that was like a this, you know de facto assumption in science, until Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding. And that gave the universe sort of like a, a direction. It's like, hmm, things are changing. And as you look back in time, that suggests, you know, something, a moment when the universe was like crazy, infinitely dense. So it suggested a beginning. And that must have been an incredible sort of mind-bending mental gymnastics to execute, uh, to go from thinking, oh, it makes sense for the universe to be infinite uh, in time, to going to like, oh, the universe had a beginning, and now let's try to figure out what that beginning was. Um, So I think that's really interesting. And, you know, I think the thing that's really cool about this question is not just that it's tangible because it makes you wonder, like, am I going to go on forever? Is the universe always going to be here? But because it really gets at the heart of the deepest problem in physics right now, like the fundamental conflict we have between two ideas in physics, which are quantum mechanics and general relativity. You know, we have a quantum mechanical description of how like particles bounce off each other. And we, you know, have a lot of questions about how that works. But we have a pretty good theory for, you know, understanding quantum particles. And we've been talking about general relativity, you know, how space bends and how it affects time and what happens in black holes and all that stuff. Also very successful. The problem is that these two theories, nobody knows how to bring them together. And critically, they have very different stories to tell about what time is. They treat time totally differently with huge consequences for the answer to this question, will time ever stop? And so to me, this is a, a fun question because it puts its finger on right on that conflict. Yeah, so there is, uh, there's a concept that you introduce in, in this chapter about uh, sort of time as we experience it being a sort of special case or special circumstance of a hypothetical uh, substance you refer to as meta time. Okay, <laughs> can you explain, so, like, what are you getting at here? Well, one of the basic questions is, is time fundamental or is it emergent? You know, a deep question in modern physics is like, what are the essential ingredients to the universe? What did it start with? And then what sort of arises out of that, out of the complexity of the possible interactions? You know, for example, if you're playing with Legos, the fundamental ingredients are the basic pieces. And from that, you can make complicated things, dinosaurs or pirates or spaceships or whatever. But those spaceships, they're emergent. You know, they're not necessary. They don't have to exist. You could take it apart and just have the Legos. In the same way, in our universe, there are complicated things like ice cream and hurricanes. 
But those don't have to exist in the universe, right? You can imagine a universe without hurricanes or without ice cream, as sad as that is. So then the question is, what are the basic elements of the universe? And for a long time, you know, people like Newton thought, well, obviously space and time are fundamental to the universe. They're just like, you got to have that, right? And now people are wondering like, well, is that really true? Is it possible to have a universe without space or without time? You know, we got to, when you're really digging deep into the nature of the universe, you got to push hard on the fundamental assumptions. So there are a lot of ideas now about how space could be emergent. You know, how it could be that the universe itself, that space is not a natural thing, that like ice cream, you could have a time in the universe where there wasn't any space. That space is like, just briefly, the stitching together of these um, separated pixels of space using quantum entanglement to sort of weave together this idea of space, these relations between different locations that we experience. And we could talk about that for an hour. Um, but even moving beyond that, now folks are wondering, like, is time also emergent? Is it possible that time is not a fundamental property of the universe, but it's just sort of something that exists now? And it's really hard to even think or talk about it because, like I just said, it exists now. I'm using time to talk about when time is. It's very complicated and confusing. But there are some theories that tell us that time might be not an illusion, right? Not in the sense that it doesn't exist, but it might not be fundamental, that it might arise from complex interactions of smaller, more fundamental elements of the universe. And so that's this idea of meta-time. Uh, you have to imagine some like deeper laws of physics that control those fundamental bits that I'm being vague about because we have no idea what they would be or what they are or what the rules are. Mm-hmm. And and if this seems sort of like frustrating, it's because we're at the very beginning of even talking about the answers because we're just formulating the questions. You know, sometimes it takes like a hundred years to figure out, okay, the important question to ask is, is there always time in the universe? What does that mean? And how do you even like think about a universe without time, then you can start to make progress on the crazy ideas that might explain it. Uh, this may be kind of a tangent, but this actually makes me wonder about a, a question that's come up on the show before. Do you have a view on what the present is, uh, uh, on whether something special is actually happening in the present? Uh, like, does only the present exist or does all of time exist? It's a really great question. Uh, we don't understand that at all. I don't understand it. I don't even know if it's a question of science or if it's a question of philosophy because it goes into the nature of consciousness. You know, does the whole timeline exist and we only experience part of it? Or, you know, does only this moment exist? Um, physics doesn't have a great way to even define what the present is. Um, and so it's, it's pretty hard to put your finger on it. Um, and I love that because these are questions that like, we don't even really know how to attack these questions. And what that suggests is that there's something wrong in the way we're organizing our thinking. You know, it's like if you're asking a question and, and you're just using the wrong language or using the wrong notation, then your question seems really complicated and confusing. And if you learn a new perspective, then suddenly it would make sense. You know, I'm reminded of that Farside cartoon where the scientists are trying to understand dolphins 
and they're writing down phonetically what the dolphins are saying, and they're saying things like, you know, habla español, and the, you know, the scientists don't speak Spanish, so to them it's just nonsense, right? But if they, if they knew the language, it would all click together, and I feel like that's the problem we have sometimes, that we're just not speaking the right language of the universe yet, and that's why some of these questions are awkward and really hard to grapple with. I thought you were going to say uh, today's physicists are only equipped with cow tools. <laughs> <laughs> only for spherical cows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, all of this um, also, it reminds me a, a bit of uh, the Copernican principle too. Um, but, but going beyond just the idea of like, you know, th- th- uh, there being some, um, uh, you know, how we should not, not see that there's something privileged about, uh, about our planet or about humans, but, but could you, could you even apply that? based on what you're saying to, to the present moment, to this time that in which, uh, from which we are viewing the universe? Yeah, probably. And I think that's why a lot of progress could be made if we ever did get to talk to alien scientists, because I think we would learn a lot about, um, you know, the biases that creep into our questions and our reference frame for answering those questions because of our human experience. And alien intelligence that might have a very different relationship with the concept of time might have a very different treatment of it mathematically and physically and might make a lot more sense. You know, um, the problem with alien intelligence, of course, is, you know, finding them, talking to them, decoding (laughs) their language. And then if they are so fundamentally different that they've made that they avoid human biases, they might be impossible to ever understand. And uh, so while it's tantalizing to imagine that like aliens are out there with the answers to deep questions about the universe, it might also be that uh, that we could never understand what they have to say. I have long thought we should outsource all of our physics research to like a 17 dimensional octopus. (laughs) Um, If you know one, I'd like to meet it because I got questions. (laughs) Uh, So, but to come back to the idea of uh, will time ever stop, you you talk about a couple of possibilities for what that would Mm -hmm. look like, say that, you know, the far future of our own Mm -hmm. universe, at least, uh, at least what we can reason from what we know today. And a, and a couple of these options are, are the big crunch and the heat death of the universe. Do, do you want to talk about what those would mean mm-hmm. uh, as, as best we can guess for time itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So remember that there are two paths to go down if you're asking questions about the deep future of the universe. And one is quantum mechanical and the other one is general relativity. And quantum mechanics is pretty straightforward about this. It says that, look, time always existed and time will always exist. And there's a pretty simple argument there because according to quantum mechanics, quantum information can't be destroyed. Like when something happens, um, you know, the information about what used to happen is encoded into the future. And so it suggests that time has always existed. There's no mechanism in quantum mechanics for time to start. It should always have existed. And you flip it around the other direction, it should always exist. So there should always be a universe and clocks should always tick forwards according to quantum mechanics but that assumes you know that space is flat and simple and general relativity the other pillar of modern physics tells us that space is not simple it's not flat it's complicated it's expanding and you know the mechanism by which space is expanding is not something that we understand hubble discovered a hundred something years ago that the universe is expanding and things are moving away from us And then 20-something years ago, we discovered, even more mind-bogglingly, that that expansion is accelerating, 
right? It's not like stuff is moving through space and gradually slowing down and maybe eventually going to stop and turn around and come back um, and collapse, but that it's speeding up, which means that there's some massive, incredibly powerful force in the universe that's literally tearing it apart. Uh, because we don't know the mechanism for it, though, we can't predict what it's going to do. Like it turned on about 5 billion years ago, started tearing the universe apart. Will it do that forever? If so, you end up with like a universe where everything is super far apart. It's just like a bunch of black holes from collapsed galaxies separated by, you know, unthinkably vast distances, even compared to the distances we see between our galaxy and other galaxies today. You know, these galaxies would be so far apart that they could never even see each other. You know, light would never reach one from the other. Um, On the other hand, dark energy could change its direction. It could stop. It could turn around. It could cause the universe to collapse back down into an incredible moment of singularity at the end of the universe. Um, and then we can ask questions like, well, what happens then? You know, does the universe stop when you reach um, a, another singularity, another moment of incredible density? Uh, we just don't know because general relativity describes that process. But when you actually get to the singularity, people think of singularities as like a feature of general relativity. Really, they're like a failure of general relativity. It can't predict anything that happens there. It doesn't know what to do. It's like, well, that's the direction you're going. But once you get there, I can't tell you what's going to happen next. So if that happens, we just really don't know what the fate of the universe would be in that scenario. But, you know, it wouldn't be pleasant for humans or for 17-dimensional octopi. Uh, but I guess with with the other option, with like you know the the heat death of the universe, mm. everything just uh, expanding and cooling and reaching some kind of equilibrium where uh, where where there's no there's no imbalance to distribute uh, any further. I think in the book you raised the idea that this could, in a way, represent a threat to to our concept of time because time would maybe in itself time has something to do with entropy, and this would be a state of maximum entropy. Yeah, we see the universe proceeding through time and we see entropy increasing. And entropy is a really tricky topic. You hear people talk about it a lot, but it's really hard to sort of grapple with intellectually. And people try to think about it in terms of like amount of disorder in the universe, but that can be pretty misleading. Technically, it really relates to the number of different ways you can arrange the microscopic nature of the universe to be consistent with the macroscopic nature that you observe. That's a little bit more subtle, but it's actually a more accurate guide to what entropy is. And what we notice is that entropy seems to be increasing through the universe. Like this is something we've observed. And a lot of places in physics seem to be sort of like ambivalent about time. The laws run the same forward or backwards. It doesn't really matter. If, you know, without friction or air resistance, for example, you can throw a ball up in the air and it lands back in your hands. If you played a movie of that backwards, it would look exactly the same, again, without air resistance, because that increases entropy. Um, But entropy is the one place where in the laws of physics, there seems to be a preference for things moving forward. So it's often claimed that entropy might be the reason time moves forwards. And I think that's a, a bit of a step too far. You know, we see that entropy increases as time moves forward. So there's a connection between them. That doesn't mean necessarily that time has to move forward. I mean, 
if time moved backwards, it just means that maybe entropy would decrease, right? It, it, it um, creates this connection between entropy and time. It doesn't necessarily imply a direction. But some people wonder what would happen when you reach a state of maximum entropy. And maximum entropy would be, as you say, everything progresses forward and the universe sort of spreads out and it becomes maximally even. There's no like hot spots and cold spots because that allows you to rearrange the microscopic state as many ways as possible. So the most freedom to rearrange the microscopic state and so the most entropy. And in that state, it's called the heat death of the universe because you have no hot spots and no cold spots. So no way for like energy to flow, no way to like do anything. The way that you operate as a human being is through energy flows. And the way that computation happens is through energy transfers. And so you can't really do anything if there's no energy gradients. So that's why it's referred to as the heat death of the universe. And people who think that time is deeply connected to entropy wonder if when entropy reaches its maximum point, if time then somehow stops or maybe time stops and then turns around and entropy starts to decrease like a, a bounce in time. And nobody knows the answer to these questions. Nobody's going to be around to, to know the answer to these questions, even if you're optimistic about the length of human civilization. But they're really fun to think about because they make you think about what time is and, you know, and how it relates to the whole universe. Well, uh Though on the uh, question of nobody being around, this this may also be a tangent, but this makes me wonder, do you have opinions on the alleged Boltzmann brain problem? I know we talked about this on an episode a few years back, and um, uh, so I may be kind of fuzzy on the details, but if I recall, it has been used to argue against some types of future eternities by the, basically the, the the argument is – if the universe were to go on existing literally forever with certain types of properties in play, eventually people whose brains randomly form from fluctuations in space would outnumber people who exist <laughs> through biological evolution on a rocky planet. And thus we would expect to be those brains instead of the, these biological brains. Is, is that roughly right? Yeah. Essentially, it's arguing that if the universe reaches heat death and then goes on forever – that most of the time in the universe is in, during heat death, right? That really basically a randomly sampled moment in the universe should be when the universe is spread out and boring and gray. So then Boltzmann said, well, what if you just had a quantum fluctuation? Well, he was before quantum mechanics, but what if you had a random fluctuation? Because, you know, the law of entropy is statistical. It's not exact. It allows for fluctuations. And so we said, well, what's the chances of the whole universe then being like a fluctuation in some vast or heat dead universe that already has existed for unknown millions of years? So he was trying to fluctuate an entire universe out of basically nothing. And so as a counterpoint, people were like, well, you know, there are smaller but more ridiculous things that you could fluctuate out of the universe, like a galaxy or even just like one brain. And so the point was made actually to criticize those kinds of cosmological models, because if your cosmological model seems less likely than, you know, brains forming spontaneously in space and thinking that they're people, then it seems pretty unlikely. Um, and so I don't think anybody really takes it seriously as like a theory of the universe. It's sort of just more like a mental exercise to wonder, like, hmm, how likely is your theory of the universe? Um, <laughs> you know, is it less likely than this absurd scenario? So there's another thing you bring up in uh, your chapter, Will Time Ever Stop? It's an idea I was instantly captivated by, uh, which is it, you point out that technically, um, 
time could be stopping and restarting all the time, frequently, without us ever realizing it. Because how would we know, right? Like our consciousness, our experience of the world is through time. So if time were to stop uh, and then restart, that might just be invisible to us. So, you know, maybe there are just uh, uh, these huge gaps in our life. Though that makes me wonder if time were stopping, mm-hmm. would it be possible to measure how long it stopped for? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, this sort of presupposes some sort of like meta time, some, you know, other rules of the universe that's controlling our time. And because time itself controls how our universe changes, then strictly speaking, if time does pause, you know, according to this meta time and then pick up again, nothing should change because that would require our time to tick forward. Like no particles can move, uh, no galaxies, no space can be created, you know, no expansion can happen without time, our time ticking forward. And that means that there's nothing in our universe that should change if time doesn't tick forward, which means that there should be no way to tell. So it could be like a near infinite amount of time between every tick of our universe could be passing in sort of like the meta universe. I think the easiest way to imagine this is in the simulation hypothesis. The idea that the universe is like a computer program running on some mega computer. And, you know, if the aliens or super beings running that simulation pause the simulation to go to the bathroom and come back, then we don't know that they've paused it, right? It's just like the characters in your video game. They're not like, hey, buddy, that was a long, you know, number two. You know, what you doing? Everything okay when you come back? They have no idea. And to them, you know, the experience is completely smooth. So I think, no, there's no way to know how long time has been paused for if it does get paused. I always wondered with that uh, hypothesis, would we notice if the resolution on our simulation was downgraded? <laughs> you mean if they they lost their funding and had to right. had to go to a more coarse resolution? Oh, yeah, decrease render distance. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it does feel like the resolution uh, decreases or increases depending on what's going on. I'm going to blame my failing memory for that. I mean, like you know what, the aliens have just been like cleaning up the cash. And that's why I can't remember, you know, what happened last week or when I agreed to clean in the garage or whatever. Um, But there are ways that we do think we might be able to probe the resolution of the simulation of the universe under the assumption that we live in that crazy scenario. Because these simulations, the way we do them, at least, is we tend to like divide the universe into huge cubes and simulate each cube separately, assuming that like the interactions between cubes are pretty small, which works pretty well, you know, if you're in your, if you're simulating like a single galaxy at a time, because mostly you're dominated by what's going on inside the galaxy and not stuff from other galaxies. But we have these particles, these crazy high energy particles that whiz through space at velocities nobody's ever seen before or at energies nobody's ever seen before, much, much higher energy than anything like created by our particle accelerators. And they might be like tripping up that simulation because they skip through several of these simulation pixels faster than anything you should expect. And, you know, there are some things about those particles we see out there in space that we don't understand. And so that opens the door to like, maybe you could explain those particles as being like a glitch in the simulation. Now, speaking of simulations and going back to time travel, does anyone out there like make any kind of an argument for time travel into the past by saying, well, if we are living within a simulation, then time travel into the past 
and the ability to change the past would be possible within the confines of that simulation. Yeah, you know, if you're living in a simulation, then the rules are essentially arbitrary. And then, yeah, you could wind time backwards. I think this goes to the heart of, like, I think a basic confusion about time travel because people imagine, like, you get in a time machine and you and the time machine does something to you and then you end up back in the past. I don't really see how that could possibly work. What you really want in time travel is for the whole universe to travel back in the past and for you to not. So you got to, like, get in the time machine and it's got to, like, rewind the clocks of the rest of the universe, Right. You don't want to be like, OK, it's still today, but now I'm 10 years younger. I mean, maybe some people want that. That's a whole different thing to look for. <laughs> if you want to like unspill your coffee, but you still want like the ideas you want to remember having spilled it on yourself so you can not just repeat it, then you need to rewind the whole rest of the universe somehow, which seems like a much bigger job. But yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. The, so the time machine would have to change the universe, not you. Yeah. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners write in when we talk about time travel and raise a similar point and a criticism of science fiction novels, which is that, you know, if you do go back in time somehow, how do you know where you're going to be? You know, because Mm -hmm. the earth and the sun and the Milky Way, they're all moving. Um, So how do you know where you're going to end up? And it's a fun question, Um, though I think if you're going to posit like, okay, you can travel through time, then ostensibly probably you can travel travel through space time so you could appear wherever you want. But the problem is like that's not even really necessarily well defined because – what does it mean to be here at a point in space or there at a point in space or no? This point in space now, where is that point in the future? Because there is no like marker to space. Space is all relative. It's not absolute. You can't like grasp this point of space and give it a name and say, where does this bit go? There's only stuff moving through space relative to each other. So it turns out that's not even really well defined. Like where was the earth, you know, a million years ago in our space doesn't actually have a meaning. That is one I I had thought of before. Uh, that, that always seemed an insurmountable problem. Yeah. <laughs> but this, this actually reminds me of another thing I wanted to talk about briefly, uh, it, which is relating time to uh, the history of the universe and the Big Bang. Uh, a thing people often ask, and, and I know there are uh, theories to address this, is is what happened before the Big Bang. But if you have an understanding that you know you have a singularity at the origin of the Big Bang that was the beginning of time itself as we know it, what are physicists talking about exactly when they try to envision causes leading to the the first instant of the Big Bang? Mostly they're trying to avoid that singularity because that singularity is a problem. You know, we don't see things like singularities in the universe. We don't see infinities. We don't see things with infinite density. We don't see things of infinite size. I mean, maybe the universe is itself infinite, but there's nothing that's like infinitely smooth or perfectly circular. These are sort of abstractions in our mind. And so most physicists who are working on the very early universe are trying to avoid that singularity because as I said earlier, general relativity breaks down. That's what it means. Like if your theory predicts something infinite, it doesn't know how to do any calculations beyond that. So instead of having like a moment of singularity, which is sort of like the naive general relativistic prediction of increasing density, instead they're going back and saying, well, maybe the Big Bang was just like a rapid expansion of space from a previously uh, dense kind of universe that we don't understand at all. 
So the basic sketch is like you have some kind of weird state. The universe is filled with like inflatons, some particle. We don't know if it existed, but maybe it did. And then those inflatons, they're causing the rapid expansion of space and decay then into normal matter. So that so now the Big Bang is that moment when the inflatons are expanding and then decay into like our universe. That's how our universe is sort of created out of these inflatons. And that avoids this moment of singularity. There's never like a moment when the universe is infinitely dense. But, you know, again, this is very speculative stuff. We think inflation happened, this crazy expansion at the very beginning. Um, and this is like a way to avoid having to put before that this dot, this singularity that breaks all of the mathematics. And instead, replacing it with like some other weird kind of substance that we don't even really know what it's like or what it's about. Um, we're just really beginning to know how to ask questions about it. And, you know, that suggests a really interesting question, which is like, if there is something before the Big Bang, what was it? And was there something before that? It seems like, in one hand, super frustrating because you're just kicking the can down the road. Like, all right, so the early universe was this expansion. And before that came something which caused the expansion. And before that came something which caused that, which caused the expansion. But is there, in the end, something original which caused it? Uh, we don't know. And there's two possibilities. One is that we just keep digging forever and dig further and further and further and further back and never get to anything which seems like could have caused itself. Or it could be that we get to some state where we're like, hmm, this makes sense to have to be a beginning. It's like it's sort of the only way things could have happened. To me, it's it's hard to grapple with these ideas. So it's easier to think about it sort of in a parallel way, which is like, what is the smallest thing in the universe? We don't know if as we tear apart particles, we'll keep finding things that are smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, or if eventually we'll get to one where we're like, you know what, this one, it makes sense to be a fundamental ingredient to the universe. Uh, we can just start from here and build up. You know, maybe it's like the smallest fundamental thing. It's at the Planck length or something. We don't know if we'll ever get there or if it will be self-evident or if there will be always people who say like, hmm, I don't know, I want to dig deeper. In the same way, it might be that we're doomed to keep digging deeper and deeper back into the history of the universe, never finding out if there was an original cause. All right, so I think we're probably getting close to the end of our time, but i got to come back to time travel before we do, because I'm wondering, what what do you think? You mentioned uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, party where the, the invitations were sent out after it happened, but w what is your personal favorite way to hunt for a time traveler? What would you do if you wanted to find evidence of people <laughs> from the future? Wow, I have no idea. I've never given that any thought about evidence for people from the future. Um, I try to think about what people would want to do. Like, if I were a time traveler, why would I come to 2021? Uh, you know, the obvious answers are like, change history. Uh, in which case, you know, I guess you can blame those time travelers for, you know, the reason things have gone the way they are. Maybe they're because time travelers have come back and tweaked the election results or, you know, or something like that. Um, so I guess the best way to find time travelers would then to be present at critical hinge moments in history and uh, look around for suspicious behavior, I suppose. I don't really know. That's a great question. Yeah, I was thinking about all this in terms of um, of ancient aliens as well, because both you have you have people, of course, who obsess about the idea of of aliens having visited during ancient times and so forth, and and you also have, I guess, a more recent phenomenon of people looking back at old pictures and paintings, mm -hmm. and you know, playing this game of basically misinterpreting. Uh, things and paintings and photos, so, like <laughs> looking back in an old picture and saying, "Oh, well, that person 
their, their, their style of dress does not look archaic enough, they must be a time traveler. Yeah, or this painting, she's holding something that looks like an iPhone. Obviously, this is a <laughs> Renaissance painting of a time traveler. <laughs> no, I think that just says a lot about us, you know, and who we are. Yeah. You know, the same way that, like, photos of UFOs seem to be constantly grainy as you know, imaging technology improves. It's always on the edge of the, our ability to capture it. So I think it says something about uh, our desire to discover weird things and, and reveal the truth, which I, I'm totally sympathetic to. I also want to peel back a layer of the universe and wake up to its true nature. I remember uh, Carl Sagan, uh, and I forget which which book this was, but it, it was in one of the books where he, he talks a little bit about the idea of ancient aliens. And I remember him um, him basically outlining the sort of ancient account, the sort of myth that one might look to as as the the sort of ancient uh, astronaut account that could exist if such things were possible. And I, I wonder if anyone's ever taken a similar approach to the concept of time travel, like like basically like boiling it down, saying, okay, if there mm-hmm. is actually evidence, say in you know the, the historical record. Um, all of people having traveled back in time. Yeah, well, what exactly would we be looking for? What exactly would it, would they have been doing? Um, and uh, and 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 how would? Uh, and I guess it would come down to like you'd have to imagine like how truthful are they going to be? Are they just going to lie about themselves being time travels? Because that's then you can basically point to any pivotal individual or any person in a pivotal period of time, right? Yeah. And would they even be humans, right? Like we fantasize about going back to see the dinosaurs. So if now we're putting ourselves back in the past and imagining time travelers, we might have to imagine some like post-human apocalyptic, newly intelligent species of, you know, who knows what penguins or or something coming back in time uh, to investigate humans, you know, to understand what happened before the apocalypse or whatever. Um, but I think we're machines, it, right? Or machines, uh, yeah. Most absolutely. of most of our space exploration is uncrewed probes. Now you'd have to imagine mm-hmm. that the same would hold true for time. Yeah, that's probably true. Or you know, after the machines have killed us all, and they just have myths about those weird meat creatures that used to uh, roam the earth or something. Um, that's fun. But it fundamentally is limited by our imagination. It's the same problem with trying to look for aliens. We look for aliens in the way we expect to see them, although we're pretty sure that if aliens exist, they're not anything that we expected. So we need to like push really hard on all the boundaries of our imagination to make sure we're looking for aliens as broadly as possible so we don't miss them. We don't just like come by and we're like, oh, that's not aliens. So it's the same problem with imagining future time travelers, like who these these people or things or entities are, are well beyond, I think, even our most creative science fiction um, writers. Well, it's like you said, like what's interesting, what would be interesting about 2021 to someone from the future? And we instantly think to, oh, well, the, um, you know, the coronavirus uh, or something going on in, you know, geopolitics or, or even in the uh, the environment. But it, it could be something entirely different. It could be, you know, the, the, the very beginning of something um, that doesn't matter at all today, right? But but matters, say, in 3021. <laughs> exactly. Which we could never possibly imagine. I mean, think about people a thousand years ago trying to anticipate what's important to us today. We couldn't even do that from 20 years ago, not to mention a thousand. Okay, last question. Daniel, what's your favorite time travel movie? Oh, my favorite time travel movie has to be Primer. Uh, it's the one oh. I think that most clearly sets out rules, 
rules that make sense and then follows those really carefully with lots of fascinating un- unexpected results. Good answer. Good yeah. answer. Yeah. That's a good one. I often gravitate towards the ones that have um you know, really goofy time travel rules, but they but if they still stick to those rules, <laughs> then then I'm, I tend to forgive them. <laughs> there are always boundary cases, though. There are always cases where, like, well, I'm not sure what would happen in this scenario or that scenario. Mm-hmm. So I like Primer because uh, it has really clear, crisp rules, and those and it has cost. You can't just like pop back in time. You have to right. like spend time going backwards, um, which has really interesting consequences. So I found it to be really creative. Totally. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Daniel. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Uh, Always a pleasure to talk to you guys. All right. Well, thanks once more to Daniel Whiteson for jumping on the old podcast machine and uh, letting us uh, poke him and prod him with various questions about time travel and wormholes and what have you. Yeah, if you want to uh, learn more, so uh, if, if you're not subscribed to Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, you can find that wherever you get your podcast. but you can also go to www.danielandjorge.com, and uh, you can also find the website for their new book. Again, the book is called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe, and the website for that is www.universefaq.com. And if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, We run multiple episodes per week with core episodes uh, dealing with science and culture on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact titled uh, The Artifact. And on Fridays, we do something called Weird House Cinema, which is our time to set aside most serious matters and just discuss a strange film. So, of course, thanks again to Daniel for joining us today. And as always, a big thank you to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us uh, with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.